In this lesson, we're going to focus on a number of formative requirements that must be fulfilled in order to consider a contract as complete. Now, in essence, when you have an offer and an acceptance, collectively called an agreement, in place, and it has been enforced by some form of consideration, generally, it is considered that a contract may be in place. However, there are certain other requirements that we must look at, and this may include the terms that have been agreed upon and whether there have been some form of misrepresentation that took place before or prior to the contract being entered into. But having said that, this particular lesson will focus on three main criteria that we must consider soon after a contract has been established or purported to be established. It is important to note at the outset that most contractual relationships, if not all of them, including whatever is studied within the purview of any LLB program or this uh, summary itself, relates to commercial ventures or commercial endeavors. Now, you'll understand why this is and how it relates to our subject matter a bit later, but the point that I want to make is that irrespective of an offer and an acceptance and sufficient consideration being found in relation to a purported contract, it still might not mean that it's an enforceable contract or one which is recognized in law. So in this lesson, we are going to look at what other aspects of a contract need to be in place before you can proceed in litigation. First of all, there must be an intention to create legal relations. What do I mean by this? As I mentioned earlier, most of the contractual relationships that are in question in any LLB program or in the context of actual legal theory is commercial. For instance, in SO Petroleum and the Commission of Customs and Excise, gives a clear example as to what a commercial contract would be, or what it should look like, rather. Have a look at it in the case summaries. It has been elucidated quite concisely, and you'll get a better understanding of it from there. Now, contrary to this, a very notable instance where there might not be an intention is where it's a social or domestic context, or where the contract is entered into by maybe relatives or friends, as in Balfour and Balfour and Jones and Paddington. Now, we need to go back and consider a bit at this point what a contract is as well. It's the voluntary undertaking of obligations between two or more parties. Remember, it's not an imposition as made by law, but by the parties themselves. The law comes in in order to facilitate some form of redress if there has been a purported breach that has occurred. Unlike criminal law, where the prosecution is done by the state itself, contracts relates to the agreements between parties. So it is up to them to come up with the terms, what exactly happens if it's breached, so on and so forth. So as such, not just in the law of contract, but many other areas of law, we see that court does not involve itself in domestic and social arrangements or agreements. Now have a look at covered and MIB. Balfour and Balfour, and you'll get a better understanding of where the court draws a line. But as in the case of many other rules, there is an exception to social and domestic relationships as well, in the context of whether it can be admitted as a proper contract in which the court can get involved in. As in Simpkins and Pays, Merit and Merit. These two cases are a very good example to outline 
where exactly the the line diminishes in relation to commercial or domestic contracts. I urge you to have a look at them, as in Merit and Merit and Simpkins, in relation to Balfour and Balfour and the other cases. There is a contrast and a comparison that can be made, and it's all available in your case summaries. Another element we must look at in order to see if there is some form of fulfillment in relation to the contract is whether there is certainty. Now, very simply, if we take a commercial contract, for instance, in your second or third year, you might be going into commercial law and other subjects as such, you will realize that there are certain elements in a contract that must be there in order to consider it as complete, something we'll look at a bit later. For instance, in a contract for the sale of goods, there has to be a price indicated within that particular sale contract. Where there is no price, it is said that it is not certain or not complete for that matter. However, this is also open for interpretation and there is an exception to this as well, as in Hillis and Arcos. In Arcos, what was stated is, even though there might not be an element which is required for a contract to be considered as certain, where it can be inferred by court in relation to the trade usage itself, then there might be an exception to this rule and it might be stated that the contract itself is in place. Now, it must be noted that this must be taken on a case-by-case basis. For instance, if the contract is entered into between two shopkeepers or two shop owners who sell bread, it is arguable whether one party is unaware of the price in the first place. So it might be logical to consider trade usage even though the price is not mentioned, as both parties are knowledgeable in this area. However, in relation to perhaps a person who's selling a commodity uh, which is not prevalent in the industry versus a customer who's purchasing it based on reliance on the knowledge of the person who's selling it, it might be unfair to consider the price as irrelevant, whereas in that case, it might be necessary. So have a look at Arcos and you'll get a better understanding of what I meant when I said that it's, it's on a case-by-case basis. Now, in relation to reliance, as I mentioned earlier, in certainty, we can consider this in line with the third element we are going to discuss now, which is completeness. In Classic Coaches Limited, the same exact scenario which I outlined earlier in relation to one party being more knowledgeable in relation to what is being sold, occurred. Now, it must be noted here that unlike um, the intention to create legal relations and certainty, as we discussed earlier, There is the component of legislation also when we think about completeness. For instance, one of the most pivotal aspects of the sale of goods legislation is the Sale of Goods Act of 1979. And in most cases, uh, sections 13, 14, 15 and even 16 denotes requirements which are absolute in a sale of goods contract. Now, in line with this, if certain contractual agreements or if certain sales do not include these parameters, court might infer that it is not complete and therefore certain formative requirements have not been fulfilled. And while uh, an agreement as well as consideration is evident, it might not be considered a contract or a complete contract unless these elements are also part of it. So court might either infer that the contract is not valid or that there must be amendments made in order for it to be made valid. Now, you might be wondering why this particular topic is important in this course or in relation to any LLB or legal studies program that you might be following. Very simply, 
how I looked at topics like this was a base for which to argue upon. For instance, any contract would require uh, an offer and acceptance and consideration, and then maybe a study or an analysis on the terms and whether there were any exclusion clauses included, and if at all there was any misrepresentation that took place prior to entering into the contract. But where topics like formative requirements, like intention to create legal relations, certainty and completeness come in, is in order for you to sustain a grade or a qualification which is above and beyond someone else. More often than not, examination questions will include certain loopholes which you can exploit and which you are expected to exploit actually based on knowledge that you might have learned in and around the subject as well. This is why I suggest that regardless of whatever learning that you take from this course, it is always advisable to have a look at literature in relation to the subject matter as well as articles and recent developments. Because that is what will not only enrich your answers, but also set you apart from others who are writing the same examination as you and answering the same questions as you. So for instance, if you are able to identify in a particular problem question a quotient of uncertainty or incompleteness or not having any intention to create legal relations based on perhaps old case law or the fact that the parties themselves are not legally bound or commercially bound, then that would assist you in developing your answer further, enriching it further and scoring better grades. Moreover, I cannot stress enough how important case law is. So have a look at the case summaries in great detail, purely because, if not for anything else, it'll become a trigger. And what I mean by that is, when you are approaching a question, a problem question at an examination, it might, in certain instances, seem similar to you. Why that is, is because there might be a case upon which that problem is based on. So if you know that particular case, if you know the facts of it, the judgment, what was held rather, as well as the principle behind it, you're good to go. Next, we're going to look at one of the most important areas in the law of contract, which is terms. <laughs>